Okay, so let's dive into it. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Urban Legends 2. Hope I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's been 21 years, right? That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, depressing in a way. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I am a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is a podcast series in which I talk to the people who made some of my favorite movies. For today's episode, I had the honor and pleasure of talking to John Ottman, best known as the editor and composer of several X-Men films, X-Men 2, Days of Future Past, and Apocalypse, and of other Brian Singer movies like The Usual Suspects, Valkyrie, and Superman Returns. In 2019, he won an Academy Award for editing the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. He's also scored numerous other well-known films like The Nice Guys, House of Wax, Gothica, Unknown, and Nonstop. Our conversation, however, revolves around John's feature film debut as a director, Urban Legends Final Cut from 2000, the sequel to Jamie Blanks' successful neo-slasher film Urban Legend. Where the original film focused on killings inspired by urban legends, John's sequel was set in a film school where the students are murdered because of their connection to a certain movie. So the film features numerous creative sequences which playfully comment on the mechanisms of making movies and the tropes of horror movies. In our interview, John recalls how he got on board as a director, how the project developed, and how an added scene changed the tone of the movie. He talks about working with a young Eva Mendes, discusses how his own experiences in film school found their way into the film, how he ended up editing the movie himself, and much more. John also recalls how he missed out on the very first X-Men movie because of his commitment to Urban Legends Final Cut, and he discusses a new project currently in development with him as a director. The interview with John Artman was conducted in connection with our German-language podcast Lichtspielplatz. So if you speak German, please visit www.lichtspielplatz.at and check out episode number 51, which features an in-depth discussion of the first two Urban Legend movies. Also, make sure to listen to Talking Pictures episode number 17, in which I talk to the director of the original film, Jamie Blanks. If you enjoy my conversation with John Ottman, please visit www.talkingpicturespodcast.com to check out our other interviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So without any further ado, here is Talking Pictures with John Ottman. So you're mainly known uh, and very well known as an editor and as a composer, and Urban Legends 2 remains so far your only... Um, feature film as a director so how did that come about right. well you know it's 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 you know in life things happen the way you'd never expect and um sometimes if you forget what path you're on and then you're suddenly given the reward of the path that that that, that you hoped would your path you, that you hoped your path would reach because um i you know went to film school to be a director that was my my goal and then i got um not sidetracked but in a way sidetracked to um, you know, edit and compose uh, for for Brian Singer, and that just basically consumed my time. And we did a film for uh, for a company called uh, Phoenix Pictures, a subsidiary of Sony Pictures, mm -hmm. and they kind of got a, a bird's eye view, uh, or I should say, um, a fly in the wall view of how Brian Singer really got made. A Brian Singer film actually got made, <laughs> and uh, they saw what I really did behind the scenes. So. Um, I got a call from Phoenix Pictures uh, one morning and they said, you know, we'd like you to come in and uh, 
and talk to us about a project. And I'm like, what are they talking about? You know, like, so, okay. So I walked in and they said, we want you to direct a feature. And I, and I was just like, oh, um, all right. So uh, it's because they said, you know, we saw what you do on, on these films and you're kind of, uh, you're, you're a director, we think. And so um, I said, well, great, what is it? And they said, well, it's Urban Legends 2. And I was like, oh, <laughs> because I, I always say it was like when your grandmother gives you a polka dotted uh, underwear or something for you for Christmas. I'm like, oh, thanks, you know, uh, because I mean, it's, it's not that I'm, I, again, we'll get into my, my movie. I'm proud of many aspects of it. It's just that I, I didn't feel that a teen horror film for me was necessarily a right move. And then so I told my I told them no. I, I can't do this. Um, I, I thank you so much. And, and so then my, my of all people, my music agent was like, what are you nuts? You know, you, you know, and they talked about how, um, uh, um, oh my God, the director of Titanic. Um, Jim Cameron. Cameron. I keep wanting, I just wanting to say Cronenberg. Uh, you know, how Cameron started out with Piranha, <laughs> That would be an interesting you know, film all... to see Titanic with David <laughs> yeah, Cronenberg. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you, but <laughs> just imagining the, this kind of story in the hands of David Cronenberg. That would be awesome, actually. <laughs> um, so they, uh, so um, he said, you know, you, 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 this is how he started out. And I go, yeah, but that was a different world because teen horror films now are sort of um, are sort of a parody because of the Scream films. Um, the Scream films have become extremely popular, um, especially even more since Urban Legend 1. And so I felt that any, any uh, teen horror movie I was gonna do that tried to take itself seriously was gonna be laughed off the screen in a way, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, in a bad way, you know? And so I went back and forth with, with New Regency, trying to explain why I didn't want to do it. And they came back to me and they said, well, what, what, what if we make it something that's more elevated? You know, something that's, that's more intelligent, you know, would you like it, would you do it then? Would you do it then? And I said, well, yeah, that would be fun um, for me. Um, so, uh, but I said, I just want you to know, and I had this clairvoyance already. I said, if, <laughs> if this is a sequel to a film where dogs are exploding in microwaves and or people being force-fed Drano, um, do they, or is this audience for Urban Legends going to want a sequel to be more elevated at all, you know? <laughs> and um, they go, well, yeah, I know, it should be, it could be different. I go, okay, so I, I, I went on board and we came up with the film school concept in a way to, to make it more Hitchcockian, really, where you don't see the first murder, it's off screen. So it's more of a mystery and a thriller uh, angle to the, to the film. And um, <laughs> so long story short, we tested the movie uh, excuse me, and it actually tested extremely well for our first test, but um, the, the, the main uh, critique was we want to see more people die, and of course, you know, and so then we tested again, and it tested much lower, and that was the overriding uh, comment. They wanted more basically just in-your-face horror, and so I said, well, great, so then we went off and we came up with this idea of, of this um, of a film student we hadn't met yet, you know, which was Jacinda Barrett, and, uh, who was this uh, model, I think, and we, we got for the part and um, came up with the scene where, you know, she gets her head cut off in the, in a window. And I just, I was there on this, you know, when I was on the set, I, you know, I just want to go for it because if we're going to do this, I'm into it, you know? So um, I, I had her throw the, throw her, what her, her kidneys out the window and had the dog eat them. And, and uh, it was so, became so over the top that even, even the studio head um, 
at Sony, she was like, I don't know, this might be just too much. I said, no, it's not too much at all. You know, let's just do it. Do it you know? And so that became a huge crowd pleaser, that scene to open, to, to put early in the movie. Um, but now you're setting forth an aesthetic that the audience thinks they're going to get, which is, um, you know, that kind of stuff happening all the time in the film. And then I sort of lapsed back into the film I'd made, which was more of a, uh, a Hitchcockian thriller, you know. Um, and now, and now I think people are revisiting, you know, the movie and realizing that, and sort of embracing that element of it, which is the the Hitchcockian thing and the play on on uh, the allegory to other films and so forth. Yeah. What's interesting about it is that the scene that you're talking about that you added um, is actually the the biggest connection to the whole urban legends concept. Um, yes. Because, I mean, there are a couple of mentions of uh, urban legends in the cafeteria scene, for example, and a couple of throwaway lines and, and stuff like that. Right. But the, the whole kidney heist idea that's I mean, taken from the first film where it's... Um, where people talk about it and, and here we yeah. see it actually happening so was there a, a lot of discussion about um how to really uh, connect to this idea of urban legends yes i mean the fact is that there's, there's not as many um urban legends as you think <laughs> so well we uh, they had used up so many of them in the first film we were sort of stymied as to come up with other ones uh and um, and then other one and, and I mean you can look up a, a lots of urban legends but they not be they may not be cinematic or something that, that makes sense for a horror movie um, that you can even make scary so um, that's that was our struggle is we didn't really have a lot of material to, to work with at this point for a new movie called Urban Legends too <laughs> so um, we had to find other ways of making it interesting which I guess was the thriller aspect or the, the, the mystery aspect of course of who the killer is which is you know common to all of these movies. Yeah I spoke to Jamie Blanks the director of the original film and he said that he really felt sorry for the people working on the sequel because they had used up all the good urban legends in the first right. movie. <laughs> right yeah so again I you know when I after I said yes to the movie then we started re looking at all the urban legends that, that really wouldn't work for this movie I was like oh now we're, we're screwed you know so uh so so in that regard I think um you know I think it's uh I think kind of proudly kind of pulled a movie off period <laughs> it's enough, without without the material that we that we actually needed yeah I guess it's more a little bit more about uh, horror movies, not so much about urban legends, but horror movies or horror yeah. tropes in a way. And I think that yeah. again connects to the origin, the, the origin of, of urban legends in a way. Yeah, you know, some of them were were, were even less of a what weren't uh, so subtle. But um, you know, it, it's it, I, I I had fun, you know, especially uh, in retrospect. I my my couple references to Alien were were a little too much i think um but i just i was i was having so much fun um kind of emulating moments like when she's running down this hall all the flashing lights and i said i need steam coming out of the of the of the, of the size of the hall you know of, of the tunnel whatever she's in and um you know and shaking the camera around it was just like that mo moment where ripley is running through the stromo to the shuttle you know um mm -hmm. you know, and some people were like oh brother come on like how <laughs> how obvious can you get but I mean I just I wanted to do some things like that you know when you came on board you said that you came up with the idea of the film school setting um so um was there any script at that point or uh, did the script develop as you went along the script developed because well before we we found the 
think before we found the location for the school, I came up with the idea that there needs to be a tower and, you know, because that's sort of, you know, mysterious and lights coming on on the tower kind of reminds me of uh, some haunted house film, you know, where you see something happen and then, the, you know, in the distance, the lights go on and that's where the bodies were and where we'd have like a, a climax there. So I was big on this, having the, the school have a tower um, and which was in our, you know, was way, way a little beyond our production uh budget to build a tower so we looked for schools with a tower that would work and good they were all gothic you know or older schools which were like in the first movie and it, and because this was sort of a film school and and it was supposed to be a little more edgy um i i, I decided to try to find a place that was modern so let's find let's find a modern uh, location if it exists and then lo and behold we found this super modern school um out in the middle of nowhere in, uh, in Canada. I can't remember what the, what the town was now. Um, and so the production designer built that, built that tower. You know, so, and put lights in and everything. Obviously, it's uh, not big enough to go in. But um, so it, looked, it became a nice visual uh, motif in the film, the tower. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and I love the look of the school. Um, I was really proud of that. And, uh, and what, what the production designer was able to do, um, you know, like the, the office for the, um, the, the teacher, the, what do you call it? The, the, the head of the film school um, mm -hmm. was basically, we, we emptied out um, a section of the library and built walls in there so we could have a view behind him at the school. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, those are things you always do with production design, but I think it, we pulled it off pretty well. Yeah. yeah I think it makes for a nice contrast uh, to the first movie, which has this very, yeah gothic feel to it very old buildings and and very dark right. and overloaded uh, with imagery and here this there's this clean architecture and like you say very right. modern um interestingly um it, it's the, the screenplay you wrote with um or the screenplay was written by paul harris boardman and scott derrickson and i think that was one of their first films right yeah yeah and they, they did a great job because uh again this thing was in flux constantly then i came in and i wanted to kind of overhaul and and i didn't rewrite it but I, I i just you know as a director you kind of direct the rewriting of it based upon ideas you have and they really uh the studio and and they were completely open and just took my ideas and made them work um and then a lot of ideas of course uh you come up with on the set um you know moments where you have a, you know a light bulb go off and you're like hold on everything let's, let's do this differently um like the guns on the floor and all that. that 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 was that was an idea i had at the moment i said what no 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 let's have the whole racks fall over and then let's try let's have the gun not be obvious let's have them try to find the gun you know and so that was i think something that just happened right then and there i just had this this, this thing on the set um uh and it was and sometimes it was hard on that film because it was my first movie and it wasn't like i'm steven spielberg walking in and despite the fact they had a lot of faith in what i was doing anytime you change like one word of dialogue it had to be full you know meetings and 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 and, and uh, calls on the phone and and debates and like i want to change it from i to the you know seriously and so um and so i i really wanted to change the dialogue a lot but it was so it was so cumbersome to change the dialogue just getting approval you know um because in retrospect you know there's some cheesy dialogue for sure and um uh i i you know if if I had they had the time before shooting to sit down and actually go through and step back from over some of the dialogue, I would have uh, kind of de-cheesified some of it, you know. <laughs> but but nevertheless, it was it was a it was a great job they did, and and uh, with a lot of uh, uh, 
it was a subject, the project was very in flux as they all are, you know, trying to get a script kind of completely overhauled from, from the original idea, whatever that was, I can't even remember, um, to what it was, to a shooting script, you know. Uh, was the original script, uh, was that always intended to be like a, a sequel to Urban Legends or was that a, like, did they... Yeah, it was, always, it, was, it was always a sequel to Urban Legends and it was always, mm. it was in a film school. Um, but, uh, and I, I've been, what, 21 years you said, so I can't exactly remember. <laughs> I, I have no idea what the original script was. All I know is like, you know, we, we, you know if we're going to go the Hitchcockian route, you know, which, which didn't, it didn't have that kind of flavor at all to it. Um, it was just, a, it was just the same old thing with, with, with fewer urban legends and in the same kind of school. And it was like, well, you know, this is going to be sort of a downer. We've got to, if, if, if it's, if, if we're going to make a sequel, the only, the only way we're going to uh, have a chance of making it somewhat interesting and successful is to change it up, you know? And so then, and, and of course, of course, that was the studio's uh, um, offer to me too, if we can make it, you know, elevated. <laughs> <laughs> Now, did some of your experiences from film school go into that, uh, in, in, into the movie, into the setting of the film school? Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, uh, there's this, you always have any, well, not just film school, but any school you're in and university, you have uh, professors with interesting quirks. And, and uh, you know, I, and I did have a math teacher in high school, actually, who would sit there at his desk and would literally just like almost like instantly fall asleep. And so there was this one teacher in the beginning where, you know, we had him constantly nodding off, you know, but uh, you know, and you have your, your very esoteric snobby teachers. And so we had one of, one of them and, and, uh, and uh, I liked uh, Hart Brockner's take on um, his character because he was kind of a cool teacher, you know, uh, he was a teacher you can find because it just kind of felt like, you know, the kids, kind of felt like he was one of them in a way, you know? Um, and that was, um, I just say it was a lot of him uh, with that, giving that idea to, to be that kind of character, which was a good move. And then uh, speaking of dialogue, just skipping to the end, um, I, I don't remember what his monologue was back then, but it was uh, not anything that he, he actually ended up saying. And that became a huge deal. At the time I was like, what are you doing? We have, we, you know, we have a schedule to keep, but I'm, you know, it's like, you want to have a meeting to my trailer for an hour? Oh, fuck. You know? So, um, but he says, look, I got to talk to you. So we went in, we went into my trailer and he, he just laid out what he should say, you know, given the same revelation, but still why this character did things. And, and, um, and I read it and, you know, as a director, you have to step back sometimes from what you think is the most right thing to do and just, and just take, take it all in. And, and I was like, you know what, this is actually better. It is, because normally when an actor has an idea, you're kind of, you're kind of leery, you know, is this, is this gonna be self-serving for the actor? Is this all some idea to make them look great or whatever? Or is it really based upon, you know, what, the character? And he really dove into the character and, and what the character would say. And so uh, this became another big giant thing with the studio, hours and hours of delay, but he but ended up, um, transcribing you know what what he came up with and that became his big monologue at the end which i think really worked great because it was it was more down to earth as opposed to so fanciful as a lot of these uh bad guy monologues are in the end mm -hmm. and i think he's an interesting casting choice because um i mean obviously you've seen die hard and so i never quite right. trust the guy when he appears on screen right, right. <laughs> um, right. but he's not so much a um like um 
when you watch the first movie, you have people like Brad Dourif or Robert England who have bring all sort of screen history with them and just have sort of certain yeah. expectations, uh, which doesn't happen with Hart Bachner. I mean, he could very easily be just the cool teacher or just somebody who happens to be important um, during the plot, but there's nothing really that... Um, right. No giveaway about him. Um, right. He's slick right. enough to be that kind of, uh, that kind of murderer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, in terms of names, I mean, he was, I guess, somewhat of a name. People knew who he was. And, and we had um, 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 who played the guard, um, the security guard. Uh, Loretta um, Devine. Loretta Devine. Uh, so obviously we had to have her because she was the thread between the two films and, and also a name. And then the studio decided we're just not going to have any other names in the film. There was one name they had for the lead. Um, and I forgot who she was, but I just didn't think she was right for the part. So um, we ended up just going for, for all newcomers. And um, I really fought hard for Jennifer Morrison. I just felt she was, she was the right thing. And so we literally had a number of screen tests um, with a few actresses and, and, um, and uh, just to, so I could prove my point, we actually went out and shot some scenes uh, so I could prove to them that, that she'd be right for the part, you know, um, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, she's a, she's an interesting lead. I think she's more low key, more subtle than um, yeah lead actresses in other movies who are maybe a little bit more glamorous or um, yeah. And I think that's that's the kind of actress they wanted uh, some 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 like glamorous big tits and you know and all that kind of thing. And I just I just felt well, this it's just not going to make it feel real, you know. So so her is a documentary. Uh, the, the daughter of a famous documentary filmmaker, and you know she's a little more intellectual and. Uh, I just wanted that kind of character for, for her. Whether that was the right choice or not, I don't know. But she was she was uh, really great, 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 great the part, and she was uh, extremely fun to work with. We were she, she was I always called her like a little filmmaker in her in her own right because she had great instincts, as a lot of actors do. But she would she would know what I'm going for as as the director, and then she would you know uh, then she would just let me. Um, you know, give me a lot of leeway, you know, and so uh, that, that was, you know, she was great to work with. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because she's gone on to, to be a director, actually. Um, has she? Yeah, I think she works in TV as a director. Oh, still working oh, okay. as an yeah, actress, I know but she's also an as, actress a, as a director. Long. That, makes, that makes sense, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and yet another very interesting newcomer in the cast, which is Eva Mendes, um, who I think oh, was right. yeah. basically I unknown at Eva that Mendes. point, right? Yes, I can always credit myself as the man who discovered Eva Mendes. I, I saw um, she, 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 she didn't have much on her demo reel, you know, at all, but there was a little tiny moment in uh, an ER episode. And I was like, you know what, she, that she, I could tell right then and there she had something. And so um, uh, we brought her in, but uh, we had other, other people up for the part too. And uh, I remember she came in and she was wearing this t-shirt and it said, um, it said something like, uh, I go both ways or something like that. It was like, you know, and, and I was like, huh, that's interesting um, because she she was kind of implying to me that she was, you know, bisexual or something. So uh, for the part, or I don't know. So, uh, but but that wasn't the reason I, I hired her. I just think um, she she was a she she really worked for the part, and um, it was her idea to sort of push the lesbian uh, angle for her character. Um, I don't believe that in the script. Um, it ever mentioned that she had feelings for um, for Amy in, in that way. It was uh, she was supposed 
be just be her friend, her pal, you know. Mm-hmm. And she sort of pushed this, uh, you know, this sort of suggestion that she was, you know, into her. And so I, I have to give her credit for that. And I think it might have started right there at her um, when she came in for her um, audition. You know. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, again, it's it's a nice touch. Um, I think it's it's just a little extra that you know yeah. um, fleshes out the characters just a little bit and and makes you interested in the people who are on screen, which is sometimes a problem in a horror movie. I think um, when yeah. people are yeah. just victims, um, anonymous right. cannon fodder in a way. Yeah, I think for her, it probably was like, hey, I can make my character even more interesting, you know. <clears throat> to pop off the screen more, be re- remembered. <laughs> so, but but it worked for the story, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember that uh, when we were shooting, she became somewhat of a of a stress point for me because she was always upset she wasn't getting enough lines or um, screen time. And um, but she was right in some ways because she wasn't a main character. And I remember there was this walk and talk, for instance, and she she could sense the coverage going on. And she knew the camera wasn't on her as much as the other actors. And so she, she came to me and she goes, you know, dude, it's like, you know, I need, I need my, my close up as it were as well. And, um, but I'm glad she did that because she became such a fun character and actually a key character f- f- with Amy, you know, being a, such a, um, a pal of hers um, that um, I'm glad she pushed me to do that. Because um, sometimes you're sort of, you're so focused on the main character as the victim of the movie, or you're just honing on her and, and, um, and then her love interest, whatever. And, um, and you forget about a really key character that she's, that she's with. Uh, speaking of Ava Mendez, I do remember one moment. Also, this is off-screen moment. Because, you know, I mean, everyone knows, like, most people know I'm gay, but, but back then, no one, a lot of people didn't really know that. And I, and I, I didn't care whether people knew or not. I was never uh, uh, shy from just, you know, letting people know, but I'd also, also didn't go out of my way to tell anybody. It's like, it didn't matter to me, right? So um, uh, we were at, at having lunch and I can't remember now how it came out that, that, um, that I was gay, but I just, it was just something in passing or something. And, she's, and she was like, oh my God, I think that is so cool. <laughs> I go, what, that I'm gay? And she goes, no, that you just like, you know, it's like that, that, that you just don't say anything or about it or whatever. And then just, it just kind of comes out that you are. And it's like, no big deal, you know? And, and then mm-hmm. I just, I don't know, you have these little moments you never forget. I, I was just like, she thought that was so cool, you know? So <laughs> um, I don't know, I just, that's a moment in your life that you just sort of ingrained in my head, that, that little, uh, that little um, uh, having lunch with her, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she sounds like a cool person. Yeah, yeah. Um, as long as you give her her lines. Okay, more lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know what? One of my favorite moments of her is actually when uh, she's sitting there at that long table in that room that's being remodeled, you know, and she thinks that, you know, Amy sent her all, sent her all these uh, notes, you know, and she really plays it so well. She thinks she knows everything. And, uh, and I had, I just kind of had the camera stay on her and kind of revolving around her and, and um and i love the way she 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 played that you know really well mm-hmm. done it's true that's a little character moment that always makes you wish that we could explore the character just a little further yes uh, but no, we're in the, sort of yeah. in the wrong movie for that <laughs> yeah it was really that scene where you're like huh i'd like to see a lot more of her and then uh, and then the way she played uh very subtly um i may have directed this way i have to give myself some credit here about i may have directed her to do this but um i don't remember who, who did what but uh, when Amy tells her, well, I didn't 
I didn't send any letters. And her reaction is just so, um, so real, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and it's a very quiet moment, actually. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. interesting. It was meant to be because uh, I wanted that body falling from, from the ceiling, which was another idea of mine. Um, uh, then that was another idea that came up with, like, on, on when we explored the, the location. Um, I wanted that to be such a scare, so I wanted to be very quiet in long moments for that, that thing to just go boom, you know, and scare the hell out of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the setting of the, the film school, the campus and everything, I think that gave you a, a, a huge opportunity to do a lot with different settings. Like you had not just a campus, um, but you had actual film sets. You have like a, the, the graveyard set and you have this yeah, science fiction was, set and, and stuff like that. That was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, I, I really wanted there to be these non sequitur, you know, um, connections between these sets and so disparate from each other, you know. And um, again, we were on a shoestring budget and I said, I really want a spaceship set. And the production designer was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, so, but they came up with this, you know, quick, cheap spaceship set and they got this mannequin. Because um, the reason I wanted it said as well, I wanted, I wanted um, when Toby was blasted through the wall to, no, was that, he blasted through the wall? Yeah, and have it go straight into this bizarre, like what, where are we kind of moment um where um it went into this this in this face of an alien you know it just wanted to be like what where are we now so uh they came up with that and they found this mannequin and uh basically some halloween masks this woman got from somewhere and and uh, put the alien in the chair and uh and it just became it became a real fun uh very quick uh moment for the alien but uh a uh yeah, a fun transition, you know, and then, then it was great to have, you know, Hartmacher be able to walk through that set for just a moment to keep it, to keep uh, the, just to keep it interesting for all this um, looking around for, I think for Amy and, and, um, and, uh, and, you know, all the filler dialogue he had and so forth, you know, to, to make the backdrop, you know, fun. Yeah. And it was also obviously in the spirit of the film. So it wasn't exactly, mm -hmm. um, out of nowhere that that this that, that it didn't seem like it it didn't seem like it didn't make sense because it was after all in a film school soundstage a very uh, very i would say uh, uh amazing film school where they have so many of these sets you know, built <laughs> yeah i mean they do have a lot of equipment but it's the orson welles <laughs> film school or i, I don't right. know the name but I, th I think orson welles was the name on of the school yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think it fits into the into the era where, um, like you said earlier, horror films sort of became a parody. Um, they sort of became self-aware in a way. Movies were yeah. sort of showing that, yes, I'm a movie or it's a movie and we're breaking the fourth wall and we're sort of toying with the idea right. also with the, with the awareness of the audience of that. Yeah, I often wonder, had this film come out where there was never an Urban Legends movie before it, um, and came out five years, six years earlier, uh, if it would have been, you know, um, gone down in history differently, you know, mm -hmm. not, not that I'm saying this is, uh, this movie has gone with the wind or anything, but um, I think it was really, uh, came out at the wrong time in a way, you know, um, mm -hmm. where, again, the heel, on the heels of, of another film that it had to be like, and also during the whole Scream uh, phase of horror where it was horror was kind of a joke yeah mm. yeah it was sort of at the tail end I think of another um, era of slasher movies and um, 
I think even at the in the early '80s, um, people were growing kind of tired of slasher movies um, because there were so yeah. many of them. And then there was another like a brief and renewed interest in them. And then again, yeah. you had so many slasher films that I think a lot of them sort of went under in a way that people weren't really looking at them uh, with a fresh eye anymore. Right. Right. Yeah. Now, one of the sure. one of the sets of that film school, um, I think, is. Um, that must have been heaven for you to direct, which is the scene set in the scoring stage. Right, yeah, that was another <laughs> thing we came up with. Um, well, actually, the music stand thing we came up with on, I came up with uh, on the day, but uh, it was supposed to be in a scoring stage on the script, of course. And um, I can't remember how that came about, whether it was uh, the writers trying to do that for me or I came up with it. I, I have no idea, I don't remember, but um, I liked it because of the, the booth and uh, you know her being in one side of the glass and and uh, and the bad guy on the other side. That was that was a real fun moment, uh, especially with the sort of moon moon mask he had on, whatever that thing was. Um, but yeah, but then you walk out and she was just simply supposed to run through the stage and get out. And on there, I know on the day I thought, well, there was this piano and all these music stands and like, well, let's make this really uh, more violent in a way. And so I I. It's, as in the script, as in the, not, not in the script, but as in the film, as everyone knows now, I, I had her run under the piano. It was probably a dumb thing for her to do, um, but I wanted him to sort of walk over and sort of do this like, bah, bah, on the keys, having it louder and louder, it's more intense. And then when she blasts out, um, have them just kind of tear through all those music stands. So again, it, it, it's, it's those examples of how a location um inspires the director you know and this, this happens all the time where you're suddenly there and you're like wait a minute i haven't seen this idea you know and just enhances uh the scene and, and i think played into the horror element even better you know i like how it combines the um the sounds within the scene with a score of the scene like he's actually providing right. his own score and then she hits yes. uh, the chimes in the in the room yeah and that becomes right. part of the soundtrack too <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So again, that that uh, I think when the studio saw that, they were so pleased because that was just completely off script, and that's something I didn't really ask for permission. I just did it, you know. Um, and uh, and it just it, it made it a little more original because uh, from the soundstage, then she runs out into a forest, and they really wanted to have this Blair Witch element of the of the movie where she's running through the forest, and so um, that was my least favorite thing to do, but it was something they really want they want really wanted. So. Um, at least before that happened, I got to do something a little more original. You know? mm -hmm. Now it's kind of unusual that a director edits and scores his own film. Um, but I mean, like I said earlier, you're, you're known as an editor and a composer. Was there any discussion about bringing in somebody else, or was that a given? No, they, they no, they actually everything? did. We no, there there was there was no one available really uh, to, to to work on the film and post, and everyone was busy on other projects. And this was a lower budget movie, so there wasn't a lot of it. Uh, um, attraction to do a little low, low budget horror film for you know established um, editors. Um, so I hired a guy um, who had done a couple of films for um, um, oh, some actor's son or something, but um, can't remember now what the actor's name was. But he I, he came on and um, uh, and so because you have to have someone cutting while you're shooting. You know, and so I remember because you're you're always very um, insecure as a director. You know, you have a good handle on it, and you're confident in what you're doing. You're there's always an insecurity, and I remember it was this simple walk and talk scene, um, the one where Ava wanted more coverage, and um, and I 
the editor sent his cut, you know, um, to to Toronto because he's in he was in L.A. He sent it. He sent the cut, and I and it was like just a walk and talk scene was incomprehensible uh, editorially, and and I was like, how's this possible? And then he would tell me. It just the scene just doesn't cut together. It just doesn't cut together. And so I'm thinking in my head, how's this possible? It's like I, I'm an editor. It's like I I I, I just standard covered. It's like how it, it's impossible that this can go together. And so I would so I would say for the latter half of the movie, I was so alarmed while I was cutting the film, while I was shooting the film, because um, I was either I was freaked out that either I had no idea what I was doing and thought I did, or this guy had no idea what he was doing. And um, it was indeed the the, the latter. Where, <laughs> where when I got back, I mean, it was. Um, just bizarro things he would do that didn't I, that that I was just sort of uh, defied all rational um, uh, filmmaking. I mean, so there was a scene <laughs> where where the guy in an alley being bludgeoned to death by the by the camera lens, you know, and he lays there, and so I'm watching his edit the scene, and and um, he says, "Watch this." So the guy's laying there, and all of a sudden. He disappears like he beamed up or something, and I said, "What? What? This, what, what? You know why?" He goes, "Well, the cam was locked off, so I could have him disappear." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, it's not, it's not a supernatural movie. It's like he's dead. It's like what? What are you doing?" You know. And so I was like, "Holy shit! I'm I'm so fucked right now." Um, so, but sometimes you know, uh, fate deals you a a, a good hand. Where um, he's a really nice guy, but uh, he came to me one day kind of forlorn and he said, you know, John, I, I, I feel terrible, but I have to go because I got a huge job opportunity to be vice president of Avid. And I said, oh, oh that's so terrible. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, this is awful, but uh, bye. You know, so, um, so then I went in and had to recut, you know, um, a lot of the stuff he'd done. And um, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, so then I ended up, I didn't really, I mean, you know, I'm a control freak. Of course I would have gone in and, um, and recut sequences or been over his shoulder, but I never, I never thought, maybe I was deluding myself that I would actually be cutting the whole film. Um, because as you know, you're, you're so overwhelmed with all the other responsibilities uh, as a director, but I was used to that doing so many things for Brian Singer. There wasn't anything I wasn't involved in in those, in those movies. So I it was used to multitasking, um, but as usual, with uh, as with Brian's movies, it made it very difficult to have the time to write the freaking score because I was so busy editing the film. But I was used to it already, so I guess that's how I, you know, pulled it off. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was a trying moments, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, does your experience as a as an editor and as a composer does that bear on your uh, directing? Um, does that influence the way that you um, set up a scene or? Um... That you I guess I mean it all everything informs your brain in some way but I, I would like to say I don't I don't I don't um, well yes I have to say yes because I actually I've just directed something the Star Trek Discovery episode and and I, I think my editorial mind was indeed working because mm -hmm. it saves you I mean this is why in the old days editors became directors because they you could you could almost foresee in the editing room what what's going to blow up in your face how much coverage you really need or not and you always want to cover yourself of course because you never know what epiphanies might happen in an editing room but you definitely have an eye for for what you're definitely never going to use and so in that regard I think I look at things editorially but I also like to think that I'm not thinking you know just like um 
like an editor when I'm facing a scene and then I'm, I'm sort of all encompassing as a, as a director, but um, it all informs you, of course. And then, and then the other thing too, as a composer, I guess, um, music is, as with editing, is telling a story, right? So mm -hmm. I am sort of adept at two, uh, well, three things that are all story element, story related. Composing is telling a story, editing is telling a story for sure. And so it's directing. So um, they all work together. So if I'm directing a scene and I know it's going to be a big score moment, I'll, I'll shoot it that way, you know, um, or especially as an editor, if I know it's going to be a big score moment, I will purposely, you know, uh, linger on a shot or something, you know, linger on a wide shot, knowing it's going to be um, a big score moment. What that score moment's going to be, I don't know, but I know it's going to be mm -hmm. a moment that, a moment in the film where it should be driven by a score, you know. Oh, and also I would say as uh, it's going into something different, I'm just, something's coming to my head. Um, you know, you have to learn as a director of how to let go of things, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and fortunately, as an, I think because of the editor side of me, it enables me to, uh, enabled me as a director to more easily let things go, where a first time editor director might not do that. We, uh, there was some scene outside the school. We had this, this gigantic crane. We spent a ton of money for that day. It was some big fancy shot. It was an amazing shot. And um, it just took too much screen time. And so in the end, I, you know, in the editing room, I immediately just cut it out. It was, it was depressing to do it, but I knew it was just, it would drag the film. And I think sometimes maybe a, a first time director who didn't have that mindset would fight for that crane shot forever until realizing it was bogging the film down, you know? Mm. So these are the things that I think helped, helped me, yeah. Mm. And it's usually the danger when a director edits his own films that he knows how much work yeah. went into everything. And, or um, especially when a DP becomes a director and they, <laughs> they, they edit, they're involved in editing and man, it's just like all about the shots, not about the story, you know? So, mm. Yeah. So it sounds like, it, like it's actually easier for you when you're both the editor and the composer. Well, you know, it's just like when I, when I score and edit, it's easier in one way because I'm so uh, familiar, like if I'm editing and scoring, I'm so familiar as, with the film as the editor that the scoring is easier in one way because I know the film so well. I know the challenges, I know the skeletons in the closet, I know, you know, but the flip side is I just have no time to write the score because the editing never stops, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a nightmare. And so I think it's the same with, uh, you know, an editor being the director, being the, I'm sorry, director being the editor and the composer, it's like you have you have just less time to do those jobs, but um, but yeah, you're so much more informed in what you're doing, and and uh, but so I guess you know it's it's a it's a, it all even evens out. It's you know I think in the, in the end of the day, I guess it's you could say that's an advantage. Um, there's also something to be said for object, objectivity, which I trained myself to have, but I think a lot of the danger in a director you know, editing his own thing sometimes is, the, is, you know, don't have fresh eyes. So it's almost good to work. If you find a really, if, you know, if I found a really talented editor to work with on another film I direct, it would, it would be great. You know, um, I would still be a nightmare for them, but at least I have someone <laughs> constructing something that, that, and they, they're doing it well, you know, and, and also seeing, seeing something slightly different than I, I would. And I, I, you know, any director, I think embraces that, you know, this is why Brian Singer would stay away 
for me for months while I was editing. A lot of it was laziness, but the other, other, but boy, he would, he would justify it by saying, well, I need to maintain my objectivity. So when he would walk in, you know, he basically wanted to forget about his movie. So when he walked in, he would sort of not be attached to any preconceived notions and didn't want to influence me as to what those notions might be because I might do something better. So that that's, there is basically some, definitely something to be said for uh, stepping back from your film. Mm -hmm. So we briefly touched upon the, um, like the reception of, of uh, Urban Legends 2 when you say that maybe it would have been uh, better if the movie had been released a couple of years earlier. So how did you experience yeah. the, the, the reception of the film? Um, well, it's, it was, you know, it's highs and lows because when we, our first test, the scores went through the ceiling. We tested in Pasadena, California. I guess that's a good place to test. And we were on cloud nine. And uh, I remember people commenting on the directing literally uh, in, the, in the score uh, sheets that they filled out. And so we were just riding high. And then um, we retested after we did some stuff to the film, um, not substantial stuff, a couple months later in Sherman Oaks, another area of, of uh, LA. And it went 20 points down, but I knew, I knew walking into the theater, we were in trouble because you can feel the room. A, um, I saw the people in line, like they were like, why are we even here? You know, mm -hmm. so the, rec the recruited audience was just like, I, I didn't know who these people were. And then we got in and the sound, for some reason, sounded like this, this old muffled for a horror movie. And I was like mm -hmm. sitting in my seat squirming. There's nothing I could do about it by that time. And I, by that point, um, and uh, I knew just the moment the film started, we were fucked, you know, so the scores went down. And I saw the, the ashen faces of the executives. You know? so, um, so I think after that test, we decided to go back and, and came up with the Jacinda uh, thing worth getting her head cut off and starting the film out that way. You know? The ultimate reception, um, you know, um, it, it was number one at the theater. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it was during the Olympics where there wasn't anything out really. And um, <laughs> Uh, and um, we competed against the Exorcist re-release, uh, re re and we, ed we edged it out just slightly so we could call ourselves the number one film in America, which we were, legitimately. We, it was the number one film. And so that made me very happy. Um, and uh, um, I can't, you know, but then you read the reviews, and it's like, you know, uh, not that I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't expecting people to say this was, you know, uh an amazing movie but um it was it's depressing no matter what no matter how you uh try to justify what you might have been expecting when you read them and sometimes people you know are very brutal with reviews and they love being brutal uh, and then then the haters come on and so it, it's you just have to not read some of this stuff you know mm -hmm. um but but you know and i can't say that you know i'm object objected to know that a lot of the things that were in the reviews were correct you know um but a lot were unfair you know but um one, once people smell, they taste meat or smell red meat or whatever, or smell blood or how do we say, taste blood, they, they all, you know, come and come to the feast, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, like you say, people like being, or reviewers like being brutal in a way. I mean, when you look at yeah. the, the, the Wikipedia site of the movie, I think it says just right at the beginning that it's universally panned, um, received <laughs> negative reviews. And like, yeah, I mean, come on. Uh, I think right. there's a yeah, lot I did of, read that. Th thanks for reminding me of that. I don't think I remembered that Wikipedia thing or I ever read it, but now that I know, <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of, a lot of great stuff in the movie. Um, like, like many movies, it's not a perfect movie. There's a, a, a lot of stuff that you know, sure. could have been different or, or um, yeah, but 
I mean, yeah, you know, I, I was the first time uh, directing a feature, and you know, I look back, and again, it's those a lot of that dialogue. Um, uh, oof, it's it's hard to listen. It's hard, you know. And today, <laughs> I would have gone, "What the hell? We got to rewrite all this stuff," and I would have put my foot down. But of course, I was first time guy. I didn't have the, the clout or the authority to say, "Look, I'm not going to have them say this," you know. So, uh, and so, uh, giving credit to the actors, we knew right then and there when there was. Mm-hmm some bet some bad lines and i credit them for trying to to huddle with me on how to best say the lines that they didn't sound as bad as they were you know and so they they again i i really credit them as little filmmakers as, as, as huddling with me and saying oh how are we going to pull this off because we, they had to say certain things um yeah you know today i would have had maybe the, the position of saying we need to rewrite these lines and then perhaps um uh some of the performances i wouldn't have allowed to be as uh cookie cutter you know as as some of them were um uh having said that i was really proud of proud of other moments where you know i did direct the actors to, to come down or or be funny and you know i think a, a lot of loretta's um antics in the by herself when she's uh you know, in the security room, I came up with her doing a lot of that stuff. And so I think that really um, amped up and made it more fun. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, the one thing that always stuck with me is the um, the moment that you already mentioned with the guns, uh, where they're frantically looking for the right gun yeah. and you just have all these prop guns. Um, yeah. And that's over, just over the years, that was the first thing that came to my mind always. Um, just you know, horror films on a horror film set. Um, I think that's yeah. that's a perfect moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that, that there were so many guns in those racks because I wouldn't be able to uh, on the fly come up with that. Yeah. Mm. So I saw that you have a new project as a director uh, coming up, uh, a biopic of Vivaldi. I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's a film that's in development. Meaning, meaning development. Meaning, you know, it may be a film that never goes. But I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about it because the studio is actually spending money to have uh, the, the original writer of the film um, rewrite the script. It's a script that's been around for 15 years in and out of production. Ron Howard was gonna do it and that fell through. And then there was another director, um, female director, I forgot her name, that was on the cusp of being shot. And then it just, they shut down production. This was maybe 10 years ago. And um, it basically, it's a Vivaldi, it's a biopic about Vivaldi and it's a terrific story. Um, and I just came across the script, this, this old Italian man, after I won the Oscar for uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, he came to me and he said, you have to do this movie, this movie, you're the one that can get this movie off the ground. And because he had been music supervisor in all those iterations for the last 15 years of, of the film. And so I brought it to New Regency, who I had a good relationship with because of Bohemian Rhapsody. And um, they really dug the idea, but they wanted the script rewritten. So um, it's being rewritten right now. And so we don't have a first draft yet. Um, and, you know, so it'll go first draft and how long before the second draft, then the second draft comes, is there a rewrite of that? But it's a, who knows, you know, where it will go, but I'm, I'm, I'm really optimistic that um, it's be something that, um, but when I'm 65, we can probably start getting off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it takes forever. I'm literally, it's like, I brought this script to them maybe two years ago and it's like, it's crazy how long deals take i mean just the writer's deal alone took six months just to rewrite the script you know and so um but now we're i think we're finally uh i have a little momentum so we'll see yeah mm -hmm. maybe there's an anniversary coming up or something like uh, 
uh, <laughs> the Vivaldi's death or something. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's a tough thing. It's a tough. It's a. It's a really great story, but the uh, inevitable comparisons will be to uh, Amadeus, and so that's a danger. Mm-hmm. But you know, but then again, I've taught a lot of people, and they're like, "Oh, that was so long ago. People won't remember." I'm like, "Are you kidding? Amadeus? It's like <laughs> one of the greatest films ever made." You know. <laughs> so, but but it's a it's it's a totally different story, of course, and um, it's a guy about this guy who. Uh, Vivaldi, of course, became a priest, um, and um, our story is sort of like he wasn't that devout and became a priest so that he could be commissioned to write music, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, but as a priest, if you slip up and and mess around with a girl, back then it was a little more than excommunication. You were sent off to this leper leper island um, in uh, in uh, Venice. So um, there's a very Machiavellian friend of his who's waiting for him to mess up who's also climbing the, the power ladder of the church and and uh anyway it's a much broader story but it's basically uh forbidden love film mm-hmm. um meets amadeus yeah mm-hmm. yeah and which i guess is, which a... is uh, which you would never expect in one way you would you, you would expect me to do a film like this because it's musically oriented but mm-hmm. in another way you'd never expect me to do a film like this because it's not sci-fi i'm a big sci-fi guy you mm-hmm. know star trek and it's not it's it's not like a thriller it's you know it's it's a love story so but again it's like i always tell people people say what do you want to direct i think this is true for any director or a lot of directors like i don't care as long as it's a good story you know so Mm. and and the fact that it's a period piece is in in a way almost like a science fiction backdrop for me it's it's not (laughs) it's not present day anything you know so it's interesting uh to go back in time you know yeah, that was actually my reaction too. Like I thought, okay, this makes sense. It's a, about a composer, so I can see the right. like the connection. Um, but yeah, it's also something different because, like you say, yeah. um, there's so much uh, genre um, in your filmography that um, I think it will be interesting to see that different side of. Um, yeah, I mean, one way it, it enables me to leapfrog over all the little crappy things I'd have to do to get to do a film like that, um, because I did waste, I wouldn't say wasted, but for lack of a better term, I wasted a lot of years, you know, being trapped in editing jail. And, you know, and so I was unable to go and, and sort of do a lot of films that would get me to that point. I mean, it's, you know, everyone has a crossroads in their life. And one after Urban Legends was mine, because after that film, I was offered all sorts of teen movies and and I don't know if it was the right choice or the wrong choice but I, I was offered dude where's my car and I just read the cover page of the script and I said I'm not gonna do a film like this I'm never gonna read the script you know it's like I was just so I'm almost like a 90 year old man in a, in a 30 year old something's body you know because I just <laughs> never really watched teen movies or anything and so I said no and I also was freaked out that the scoring community had written me off when I was just making a name for myself in the scoring world that I was then I was just like not one of them anymore because I'm going to direct something that bothered me for some reason so mm. I, I you know scratched my way back into the scoring world and did that as a career for the next you know 20 years and um uh and now I've gotten myself again to a place where you know I potentially knock on wood direct something uh and and uh, so who knows, by this point, if I had done Dude, Where's My Car or something like that, I would be directing any, anything I want to direct right now, you know, or it could have failed miserably, uh, you know, but in retrospect, maybe I should have done it anyway, because if it failed, who cares, I could have still gone back to film scoring, so I, sh- I should have just done it, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, you never know, I mean, there are uh, yeah. so many, so many paths you could take, and um, yeah. I, I actually think that you... Um, 
you were supposed to. Is that true that you were um, you would have done the first X Men movie too uh, if it hadn't yeah. been for Urban Legends too? Yeah, when we tried desperately to um, literally, uh, Brian offered Phoenix Pictures like a few hundred thousand dollars if they could push their post production schedule so I could score. X-Men um, and um, they like, uh, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> you know, so, um, and I was kind of, you know, I really wanted to score it. And I'm also, uh, and it's, it's a long story about his nightmare editing that film without me, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So that was, that was, uh, I would have been doing that film, of course, you know? And so I had the dubious task of trying to help him find a composer, you know, and here I am like trying to help him find a guy doing to do the job I really wanted to do, but I didn't, but you know, I, I had no agenda trying to, to slip Brian up. And so I really wanted to you know, give him some good ideas. And um, uh, as it turned out, the Donners were very uh, connected to uh, Michael Kamen. And I think Brian is a, was a little bit of a star fucker where he was all excited that Michael Kamen had worked with Eric Clapton and, and the Donners. And so we hired hired him and, and Michael Kamen is a wonderful composer N nothing against Michael Kamen but the, the but the, the casting of him for the job with Brian was the wrong match and I I just I knew it would be and I told Brian I said look he works nothing the way I work he doesn't work any way the way I work he doesn't do mock-ups you're not going to hear what you're going to get you know and 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 also the other thing the major difference was that Brian was used to be was used to be to being told by me what he had to do. I was the one defining this is what the music should do. This is what we should do here. And Brian would just say, "Okay, fine," you know, or he would he would or or he would like um, say, "I don't like that," but okay, that's good. But he'd let me sort of take the ball and run with it. And Michael Kamen was more of the composer. Where what do you want me to do? Tell me. And Brian would be like, "You know, I don't know. Just make it." And he, he says, and then so he just told Michael. Um, I want it to be like the 70s because we love films in the 70s, which Brian and I do. We think that's, I think that's a heyday of filmmaking was, for me, was the, the mid to late 70s, you know, or early 70s. Even. And but Michael Kamen took that in a different way than Brian and I take that. We, my sensibility is sort of like, I'm ingrained with storytelling sensibilities of the 70s, but doesn't mean I'm literally going to do a score that sounds like it was taken out one of those movies it'll have that sensibility michael took that direction as like literally a 70s score and so i think his first iterations of the score were you know shock and of course um he would just get to the, to the scoring stage and kind of wing it you know where brian was like you know so i think brian there's there's the stories today still on that fox stage remain about the that that movie and how brian would run onto the scoring stage going no 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 <laughs> it's like michael came and having like nervous breakdowns and you know and i look i i, I told him this would happen <laughs> you know and again nothing against michael came and just a different kind of uh of, you know way of working uh that he that i didn't think would ever work for brian you know mm. anyway but yeah, I mean, but you yeah, were able it, to to get back into the X Men world then, after all, with the sequels. So, <laughs> well, it's funny because I mean, it, you know, Brian would tell me what a disaster X Men was going to be, you know, and because on, behind the scenes, apparently, it was just a shit show beyond all shit shows. But so I was expecting when I saw the film it to be, you know, just unwatchable. It was totally fine, you know. And so um, I they did a good job covering up what the shit show was behind the scene. Or there was five editors. I guess all the all five editors didn't like each other, and one threw a bottle through a window when he was talking to Brian. If you mentioned my name one more time, you know, because you know he was all John would do this, John would do that, and and so by the when I walked into X Men Two, literally the head of the studio was like, 
you're John Hobbit? Because, <laughs> because, because for the whole year or year and a half of X-Men 1, Brian would just kind of say, John would do this, John would do that. And so, um, and, and so there, I could do no wrong, you know, that film, you know. So it was, and, and they just let me do what I wanted pretty much on that, on that movie, so, yeah. <laughs> it's good being set up sort of uh, like as exactly a it's like it's like when you're hired to rescore a movie you know when they when they many times um uh unfairly have 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 fired the first composer because the film is having problems they always blame the composer so when you come on as the guy rescoring the film you know you're just like you know the the, the sea is parting and the angels are singing <laughs> and you're walking in the room you know so yeah i mean you've been on the other side of that too right with halloween um age 20 so yeah it's the same thing i mean that's another whole podcast in itself but it's uh, -huh. uh you know again as a filmmaker in retrospect i understand uh the producer's mindset where the idea where what happened was is uh, uh speaking of hitchcockian and all that stuff is uh the the director brought me on he says i want to have like an alfred hitchcock kind of score and do something different that's not like you know typical you know horror clunks and bangs like okay cool so that's what he hired me for and so I went off and scored the film and the producers, the Weinsteins were completely unaware of this approach. And so um, <laughs> they saw it, but the problem is they were getting massive high test score ratings with, with their temp score, which was all screen music and, um, and uh, other remarkable trauma stuff. And which is basically in your face kind of approach. And and so they were horrified by my more thoughtful score, they called it, um, and where it was more character driven. And so it became like a, a Cuisinart between my score and, and the temp score. Um, it's just, to me, it's just unwatchable. It's like, uh, you know, you lay out to tell a story with your music and it gets chopped up and, and then suddenly there's a screen cue and then back to your cue and then maybe literally a screen cue for maybe 15 seconds and back to your cue for a minute, then screen cue for a minute and back to your, you know, but anyway, um, but years later, if I were a producer on that film and I, you know, I've got money behind it and I'm getting massive high test scores with the temp score, uh, I'm going to be a little afraid to, to just completely depart, do an Alfred Hitchcock kind of score and then release the movie. So I, you know, in retrospect, I understand their, their fear in that, you know. Mm, I see. I'm not saying uh, I, I like what came from it, but I understand the the producer's mindset yeah yeah i think actually the the music as it is in the movie is, is one of the movie's weakest points um because it's so yeah. it, it it has nothing to do with the movie in a way it's yeah. so generic um and <laughs> yeah. that sort of yeah um that that harms an otherwise very interesting film but yeah like you said yeah, it's, that's, that's another because podcast because one of my one of my through lines in the movie was not only laurie stroud's theme i came up with but also the isms that John Carpenter came up with in his score to, in Halloween, that, that, that little thing mm. happened, or the, or the bum, bum, bum. And I had built that in to my score as a, you know, to keep it sort of, it's still in line with, with Halloween, but more of a big orchestral version of it, which thank God, at least my opening titles, you know, were intact. And that was sort of the flavor of what the film was going to be, you know, but yeah. I, I couldn't. I couldn't even bring myself to go to the premiere. I just wouldn't. I, I was just so at that time. Of course, I was angry and also embarrassed. I, I, I had to put a bag over my head, you know, so, <laughs> or a Halloween mask. <laughs> so I think and, yeah. this this covers basically um, what I have about. Um, okay, great. Urban legends. Um, 
Yeah, it's been so long. I wish I could you know, like come up with some other memories. Um, but there's also that comment or comment track I did years ago. <laughs> there's, I guess that stuff was more fresh in my head then, you know. But uh, um, you know, the, but it's funny. This is making me want to go go watch it now. <laughs> so it's, How long yeah, has it been since you've seen it? Oh my God, um, I would say it's got to be at least 10 years since mm -hmm. I've seen it. You know. Um, Yeah, one of my regrets is the new director too, and I think this might have been corrected since then. Is I, you know, you do this, uh, you go in and you do the color timing for the film for the video release, and I was so freaked out back then about people not being able to see detail or something, so I kept having them brighten up every scene, mm. you know. And um, the poor DP must have been horrified when he saw <laughs> what I had done, and and I don't know if years since they've you know, darkened it to, to look better. Uh, but I was like, years later, I was like, why did I do that? It's a horror movie. It should feel a little dark and more contrasty. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, it should be more um, uh, um, David Lynchian, you know, uh, not David Lynchian. Yeah, David Lynch, you know, um, you know, so anyway. It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, like I said, it's a, it's a very enjoyable movie. I think it has very a, a lot of very clever moments. Um, yeah, I, I have that... to say, you know, it's funny. I, I'll tell you one little story. When So uh, Brian was busy doing uh, X-Men and he came in to my editing room and, and he watched and I, and I played, a, played a scene for him. I played the scene where the guy's being bludgeoned by the camera lens. And I turned it off and he looked at me and he's so depressed and he says, Oh my God, you're a director. It's like, you're going to be so successful. Meaning that you're, I'm going to lose, he's going to lose me, right? Yeah. And I said, oh, I, I said, oh, don't worry. I said, this, this is full of great sequences, but when you put it all together, it's fucking stupid. <laughs> so, so, and that's, it is true. It's like, I'm really proud of a lot of the sequences in that film as, as a director, you know, and how I made them have a flair, like the camera lens scene, you know, giving it more of a, of a style, style. Um, finding that alley and, and how it looks so so creepy and 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 like you said but sort of like uh, um, modern but 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 creepy looking and and um, and uh, also like the montage when uh, when Sandra is is killed you know when it's just the playback of, of what her murder was mm -hmm. it's things like that I'm really proud of um, and I think those were the moments that the film transcended maybe what it was for a moment um, but again, yeah, you string it all together and you got this goofy horror movie, you know, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess a lot of horror movies are basically like that. And so I'm always just happy to see cool sequences and good ideas and, you know, just to have, um, yeah, yeah. To, to enjoy the ride in a way. Um, right. And, and be interested in, in how it all develops, um, that I don't get the feeling that I've seen um, all of it before. Um, that it keeps right. surprising me um, and so I see that as a successful movie yeah it was like it was fun a location scout to find that amusement park because that became you know a more an interesting sequence and then also I probably talk about this in my commentary track but the original the opening of the movie was supposed to be on a boat which um, all this water comes in and floods the boat and there's this big giant sequence and, and it's like I, I, we were already like how are we going to afford that And as we're walking through the sound stages I there was a crack a door was opened by a crack I looked through and there was this jumbo jet set in there and I was like what is that and they said well it's from a movie called Pushing Tin and I was like we need to make this boat scene on a plane and so that saved a saved us a lot of money and gave us a big production value for the opening of the, of the film even though the opening was supposed to be 
cheesy and bad because it's a student film, a really advanced student film. But but it, but it, sometimes I'm like, I I I I I cringe, hoping the audience is going to get through the scene knowing it's it's supposed to be terrible, and that's not the way the whole film is going to be that bad, you know. So. Um, <laughs> It, it was a risky thing because you're really starting your whole film out with like the just terrible scene, you know, but it was supposed to be, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, but but the, and when it pulls out in the end and shows that Anson Mount is the director, it, that, that that was that's that's the fun part of it, you know. Mm. Um, you know, and this is also pre 9-11. So, you know, pilots being slashed by knives and stuff like that was like, you know, uh, way before that, you know, the terrorists even thought of doing that kind of thing, I guess, you know, so uh, when it showed on TV, a lot of that was cut out, you know, um, so. Mm, I see. Yeah, and yeah. it's the same same year that Final Destination came out, which is also, I mean, it's, it's not a slasher movie, but it has that plane sequence. Um, and so I think, yeah. I, I don't know if your movie was first or if uh, Final Destination was first. Mm, yeah. It kind of feels like it's a riff of uh, that uh, uh, sequence in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what, what different countries choose to cut out. I mean, obviously, that's a universal thing, that, that those kind of scenes in a plane during that time. But I remember we did Jack the Giant Slayer, and um, there's a scene where the giants, like, fight, they fall in this fiery water. And, uh, and we have to uh, uh, recut the film based on whatever, whatever restrictions every country has. And in Germany, you can't have people in fiery water or something like that. So we had to, at least mm -hmm. that was a decree, that was their decree for our film. And so we had to really cut back or cut out um the scenes of people in fiery water <laughs> it's mm. interesting it's uh, very specific uh thing to cut out you know yeah i think people on fire that's always a, a big problem in action movies for example those are the scenes you know when you have a stuntman who's on fire um uh -huh. those are often sequences that get, get cut out of, of german uh, of the german version of films so huh. Yeah, and then you, when you look at the UK, for example, you can't have a nunchaku um, in a sequence. They they always cut out <laughs> scenes with a nunchaku, um, or they have a problem with a with uh, if you depict the the syringe um, of the needle going into the vein. Um, so, for example, Pulp Fiction uh, was cut by two seconds because there is this one moment right, where right. Uh, Uma Thurman shoots up, and um, you know they had to sort of reframe that and cut that a little bit just to. <laughs> <laughs> have it being shown in England so yeah 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 I always thought if I did a horror film again because I'm not really a horror film person but I would just go for the jugular I'd make it the most gory horror because I if I'm gonna go see a horror film I want to see horror you know I want to see mm. uh, gore um, I, you know because that's the fun of it for me and then I thought it got kind of tamed down after the 80s you know and and you know where I remember a Halloween two, where a guy literally sticks his fingers in a guy's eye sockets and pulls and his skull cracks, you know, those are the kind of things I want to see. Right. And so if I ever did a movie like that, I would just go for it. <laughs> we come mm. up with the most nasty, horrible ways of people dying. <laughs> <laughs> see, that's sort of the advertisement for your next movie. When people listen to the podcast and they, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they hear that and they think, yeah, what about urban legends part four? <laughs> right. Or, or or the gore, the gory version of uh, Vivaldi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh. Well, it was great going down memory lane. Hope I remembered enough for you. Yes, absolutely, John. Thank you so much for um, sharing your memories and and sure. um, uh, you know diving into the film and, and and all of that. I really appreciate you taking the time. 
well, thanks for doing a show on this uh, little-known movie. <laughs> yeah, it's always been or, one of my or, favorites. Or to say a little-regarded the... movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the universally panned or whatever the Wikipedia thing is. Yeah, it's always been one of my favorites from the like this this era of horror, like the late late nineties, early two thousands. It's one of the movies that always right. stuck in my head. So um, uh, it's very enjoyable to. Uh, well, it's either because you, you actually have really good taste or really bad taste. I don't know, but I'm, I'm glad we could do it. Uh, I think the jury's still out on that one. Bye.